Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Eagle Church. Welcome to everyone joining us online. So great to have you here. Uh, we've been in a series on uh, the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 4. You should have received some notes on the way in the door. They're at the tables in the back. Everyone online, your online host, can direct you to the notes accordingly. Just to reset a little bit of the context of the book of Nehemiah is that in your Bibles, chronologically, Nehemiah records the last chronological events before the 400 years of silence. That's what your blank page in your Bible represents from the Old and New Testament. If you flip at the end of your Old Testament, there's a blank page there before the New Testament. That represents the 400 years of silence. So Nehemiah records the last events before that 400 years. It was written around 445 BC. And so the Persians are in power, if you remember. Nehemiah's cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. Well, Alexander the Great comes to power, and he eventually overtakes the Persians, which brings the Greeks to power. And then as the Greeks begin to grow, that's when the Roman Empire begins to build under Caesar, and that's the setting in which Jesus of Nazareth is born. So 445 years before Jesus enters the scene, these are the events where God says, hey, my people are broken, the walls are broken, the gates are burned, the people are discouraged. Remember, they're, they're in Babylon, and he's, God says, I've got something for you to do, Nehemiah. I need you to lead a movement back to the city. I need you to begin a rebuilding and a restoring and a renewing work 445 years before Jesus would come. And remember, Nehemiah was a layman, a day laborer in the house. Uh, he was not a priest, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a pastor, he was just an average everyday worker who God says, i got something for you to do. And we've been looking at the journey of the project that he's been undertaking. I put in your notes a picture of the size of the project. The first part was to rebuild a wall and restore the gates. The wall was about two miles in its perimeter, 10 to 15 feet thick, 50 feet high. So this was a large project. And this was a significant amount of work to be done by the people of God. And so, you say, why so significant about the wall? The wall represented a safety and security issue because there were lots of people who were trying to oppress the Israelites for many, many years. Remember, they spent 70 years in Babylon living basically in a pile of rubble. And so now the rebuilding work begins. And that's the journey we've been on. We're in chapter 4 today, and we're looking at, I entitled today, that progress multiplies problems. Progress multiplies problems. Somebody's like, say, hey, you're reading the mail today. You feel like your problem front in your life is on high level of multiplication. That's Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 4. Because the more steps he took towards fulfilling the work God wanted him to do, the greater the resistance and opposition and headwinds became. And so we're going to look at three things today about the nature of resistance. We're going to look at a principle you've heard me say many times from this stage, because it's all through the scriptures, is that resistance indicates progress. We're going to look at that first, and then we're going to see how resistance, it fuels a prayerfulness, and then thirdly, we're going to see how resistance builds resilience. So look at Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to get going here in verse 1. It says, when Sanballat, now who's Sanballat? You remember that? Kurt and Ted did a great job giving us a backdrop to this trio of trouble. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Sanballat's name means sin has given birth. Thank you, Mom, for that, okay? And so Sanballat's a governor of Samaria. He's not interested in the Israelites having a rebuilt wall and restored gates and encouraged disposition because he wants to oppress them. A defeated people is an easier to oppressed people. 
So a rebuilt wall meant to strengthen people. So they're resisting the project because they want to oppress the people. And he's got some cohorts with him, Tobiah his assistant, and Geshem was an Arab who oversaw a bunch of other territory there. So Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they're working together. Back to verse 1, when he heard they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? That gives you the context of what the last 70 years have been. Piles of stone, burned rubble, discouraged people. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, what are they building? If even a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So here's the first principle we see, is that the more Nehemiah steps in, kind of the tip of the spear, he's living on the redemptive edge of God's purposes. When you say yes to Jesus, when you continue to say yes to him, then you're living on what I want to call the redemptive edge. Do you know what's out on the redemptive edge? Resistance. Resistance indicates progress. Headwinds are stronger on the redemptive edge. And that's what Nehemiah is finding. He's like, Lord, I'm just trying to do your will. I'm doing what you ask me to do. And it just seems like, hey, it's every Tuesday now. And we've got Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem just coming at us. And if you notice that, right? Sometimes in life, the greatest forces against you have some names. Some of you have some people in your life who see it as their main mission in life to frustrate and irritate and thwart and interfere with God's work in your life. Now, their names, if they're sitting around you, it's not, don't elbow them right now, okay? But those people in your life, right, in this case, he's got names. Nehemiah's got names, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. Sometimes that's the case. And, of course, Jesus says, well, there's actually one great opposer to the work of God in your life. It's Satan himself. Jesus clarified Satan's agenda. John 10, 10, right? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, so Jesus says, hey, now there's going to be one who's going to always oppose the work of God in your life, and it's the devil, Satan himself, and he's going to try to kill, steal, and destroy. And then he's got a lot of other workers placed around. In this case, he's got Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem to try to thwart what God wants done with his people. I love what C.S. Lewis said. I put this quote in your notes. It says, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God or counterclaimed by Satan. Well, C.S. Lewis is just saying what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6. He said, hey, just so you know, people, make sure you realize all your battles are not flesh and blood battles. Most of them go beyond flesh and blood, and they deal with spiritual principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. That's Ephesians 6. And remember, we've talked many times here that the predominant worldview in our cultural moment is called secularism. Secularism's main agenda is to disciple us to live without God. Now, follow me here. If you follow the train of secularism, where is it going to take you? It's going to take you to basically, you're just going to turn to the physical, to science and self and here and now. Okay, when you jump on that train and you stay on the secularism bandwagon, you completely push aside the spiritual and you elevate the physical only, science, self, and here and now. Well, all that energy that God has placed inside of you to do primarily spiritual battle work, you have only one place to turn it, relational and cultural. That's why you vilify everyone and shout them down. That's why the social media feed looks like what it looks like. That's why the political rhetoric sounds like what it sounds like. That's why your HOA meeting and your school board meeting 
looks like what it looks like. It's because when you breathe the air of secularism and you begin to adopt the mindset, you take the energy that was intended to do spiritual battle and spiritual work and you turn it relational and cultural. And then you just shout it down and you vilify everyone around you. And Jesus calls his people not to be a mirror of that culture, but a window into another kingdom with another king. That's Nehemiah. Nehemiah's given his people, they want to come at Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem hard. You know that. But Nehemiah's leading them saying, hey, you know what? We really have to see beyond the physical to the spiritual. That's what Nehemiah's doing right here. There's another kingdom. There's another king. And we're going to make sure and frame our realities that way, which is why then his response, notice verse 4. Here's what Nehemiah does. He says, hear us, O our God. So right there, you see his posture? This resistance immediately in Nehemiah fuels a prayerfulness. He calls out to God because he recognized the real battle isn't Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. The real battle is Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem's God against Nehemiah's God. And he's ready to take that on every day. He says, okay, come on, let's go. And so he says, hear us, O God, come to our aid and defense. Look, for we are despised, turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Do you see how? So the resistance indicated progress, that they were living out on the redemptive edge. They were doing what God asked them to do, and then it fueled this prayerfulness. They began to understand the real battle really wasn't flesh and blood. The real battle had to do with spiritual principalities and powers. And so Nehemiah kept consistently calling the people to their knees to cry out to God, to what we've talked about around here for the last month, travailing prayer, that when you're calling out to God turns to crying out to God. That's travailing. When you're in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, that travailing, that yearning, that Romans 8 wordless groans when you can't quite put the vocabulary to what's going on, that right there. And Nehemiah says, all that energy, all that angst, all that frustration to everything coming against you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to repurpose it and rechannel it towards this, travailing prayer. Like we're going to cry out to God together. That's what Nehemiah is doing consistently because when you grasp your core issues are really spiritual that you're facing spiritual problems that require spiritual solutions if you really grasp that as the people of God then our prayerfulness should go up because we recognize we can't handle it in our own wisdom and strength yes that is the point and so that's what Nehemiah continues to do and so we had a Nehemiah 4 type situation occur in our culture just three weeks ago Auburn University Auburn University is a public school, SEC school, second largest university in Alabama, 30,000-ish students or so. Three weeks ago on the campus, I want you to see what happened. <laughs> Auburn University senior Michael Floyd says he will never forget what he witnessed on campus Tuesday night. I've seen Auburn basketball beat Kentucky. I, I, I've seen... Um, Auburn football beat Alabama, but I have never seen something like I did on Tuesday night. Thousands packed Neville Arena for a night of worship. When it was ending, one student wanted to be baptized. 
But without a tub, crowds started gathering at this lake at Auburn's Red Barn, where roughly 200 people gave their life to Christ. Even head football coach Hugh Freeze got in the water to help. And that's just a message of unity, saying when you're a part of the body of Christ, you're never alone. Everyone was so just excited and joyful. Kristen Carr is a student journalist who watched it all play out. Her video shows the crowd cheering every time someone resurfaced, something she hasn't seen before. Never in my life. I mean, I was even talking to adults who were there that were a part of it, and they said that they had never witnessed anything like that. And to think this all started because of a worship event. It's being called Unite Auburn. The woman behind this event says it began with just five girls meeting each week to pray in the arena, which grew to 200 students, which caught the eye of local ministries. Who said, we want to get behind this. We, we, you know, we want to see this turn into something much bigger. And it did. Around 5,000 people attended Unite Auburn. It was free. Donors covered the cost. And Pruitt is already getting calls from other universities to bring similar programs to their campuses. She says something special is brewing. We see God moving in our local churches. And so last night was just you know, a, a ripple effect of what else, what is already going on. A ripple effect they hope will spread beyond the plains. How about that, church? Did you catch it? Five girls. Five girls saw the real battle. Five. Five girls said enough's enough. Five girls looked at their campus and were so burdened about what's going on in their campus. They said, no. We're tired of the darkness. We're tired of the depravity. We're tired of the foolishness. We're tired of the mocking of God. So we're going to pray. Five. Did you hear it? Five spooled into a few hundred, spooled into 5,000, Spooled into a bap. Did you notice the baptism service? I've never been a part of a baptism. How cool is that? It was like 10 o'clock at night, they said. They just pulled vehicles up with their headlights. Did you see that around the pond? How cool is that? I promise you the university administration the next morning when they got their little report of what happened on campus, I promise, I'd just love to have been a part of that discussion. Uh, you know, President, just want to let you know, last night, um, a couple hundred students got baptized by the lake by the Red Barn and campus there. What? Yeah, started at Neville Arena, spilled out into that. Five students. High school students, I know you're burdened about what's going on in your schools. I know you are. You should be. And maybe, maybe you're the five. Maybe you follow those Auburn leaders and just say, you know what, we're going to consecrate our heart and we're going to call out to God in prayer. We're going to cry out in prayer. Like high school student, I know you've got to be completely at the end of your, like just so frustrated when you know there's dialogues happening within school leadership where they're discussing placing litter boxes in classrooms. This is a real thing. Because we have young people saying they're not a boy or a girl, but they're identifying with some part of the animal kingdom, attaching certain tales to their life called things called furries or whatever they're called. And now we've got leadership trying to accommodate human beings identifying as animals with litter boxes. Somebody needs to step forward and say, 
This is not right. Enough's enough. So maybe five. There's way more than five over here. Students, it just takes a few. And you start getting together, you consecrate your hearts, and you cry out to God. For God to come in power on that school. Or college students, I know a lot of you college students listen online somewhere. College students, wherever you are. I've spoken to some of you recently because, you know, the semester just got started. We have a large graduating class that went, my daughter's a part of that. A large graduating class went off. And several of you are very burdened, discouraged about the climate and condition of public university setting. I want you to know I hear you, we hear you, we see you, we're praying for you. Students, I want to challenge you with something. How about this? What if God sent you to that university to be the five? What if you consecrate your heart, get four other friends together, and start crying out to God? And say, enough's enough to call out to God for a movement on your campus. Why can't it be not just Unite Arbonne? Could this happen at IU? Could this happen at Purdue? Ball State? Butler? Indiana State? We've got students in all of those campuses. It's just going to take a few. A few who what? Who follow what Nehemiah said. Who see beyond the physical realities. I know the partying scene is overwhelming. I know the depravity can be overwhelming. I know the mocking of God can be overwhelming. I know it can be discouraging. But to see beyond the physical into the spiritual and to say, you know what? God plus anybody's a majority. God plus anybody can come. It just took five and God showed up. And I'm believing that. Not just for Auburn. I'm believing that all across this country. Why not? Church, why not? Unless those of us older think it's just for the young people. Come on. Some of you are in corporate settings. And the current HR department. Do I need to say much more here? The current HR department policies are so integrated with secularism and humanism that you don't even have a vocabulary for what you're being asked to represent, teach, lead, all that. Okay? And you've got this pent-up stuff inside you. You're so frustrated. You get so angry at times when you're, okay, so I want you to now take that, follow Nehemiah's lead. You've got your own Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. They might be in the name of HR department, whatever it is. They're coming at you. Now, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to take that energy. I want you to redirect it, and I want you to cry out to God. I want you to get a small group. I know there's believers planted in all these corporate offices everywhere. I want you to start getting a small group of people together, and I want you, you be the five. I promise you the HR department's not going to know what to do when Isaiah 64 shows up, when God rends the heavens and comes down. I promise you the HR department doesn't have a category for that, and I promise you that will change and shape the trajectory of corporate America, just like it could do for university students. How about in our neighborhoods? Mom, dad. When are you going to say enough's enough? How many more moving trucks are going to show up? Another family shattered by divorce. Another family splintered apart. Happening all across your streets. When are you going to say enough's enough? Rend the heavens and come. If we're just going to deal with the physical, we're not going to be a people who are following Nehemiah to the Lord. Hear us, oh God. God, we need your help. And when we do, hear this now, church, stay with me here. 
when we step into that, just like those five girls at Auburn did, just like students I want you to do with your high school campuses, just like college students I want you to do, just like those of you working in all kinds of settings I want, yes, when we step into that, here's what we got to expect. Resistance will come. It will come. It's not a question of if. It's just when and how. So, no surprise, the Auburn University student body, in particular the leadership, they've been under the mic. If you Google it, you'll see. They've been getting a lot of flack for what happened on their campus. An organization called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. They're based out of Wisconsin. They're an organization, if you go on, your, on their website, I don't recommend it, but if you go there, you'll see that their statements are the following. Here's the mission that they have, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. They say they're a group based out of Wisconsin made up of atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and free thinkers. I would argue with the last sign, free thinkers, but don't let me digress. Who are working toward a day when our country would be completely free from religion's influence and impact. They envision a country of non-theism. Okay? Freedom from religion. Okay? Full court press against Auburn University. They issue a public statement that said the following, quote, It is inappropriate and unconstitutional for university employees. Now, why did they say that? Because the head football coach and the head basketball coach and some other employees were baptizing some players and other folks in the waters. For university employees to participate in worship gatherings like what took place at Unite Auburn and the baptisms that followed. Huh. It seems that Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem are working in Wisconsin right now. Now, if I understand our Constitution correctly, it says freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. It's in God we trust, not in self we trust. If I understand it correctly. And so we ought not be surprised when Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem come, you know what that ought to do? We ought to double down on our travailing prayer. That's what Nehemiah is going to do. The stronger they come at him, the harder they come for him, the deeper he goes into crying out to God. That's our vision right there. So as we step into this church, as we keep pressing students as you do this, adults as we step into this, we long to see what just a little window. God just cracked a little window over Auburn University three weeks ago, and look what happened. I mean, it was amazing, powerful. Mark those kids forever. We long to see that ripple across this whole country. It will change the heart of a nation. It can happen. But it is not going to happen because the principle is God comes where he's wanted. Do we want him here? Yes. Do you want him on your school campuses, on your college campuses, in your work setting, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your church? He comes where he's wanted. And the representation of wanting him is crying out, a calling out that goes from a place of crying out. So the resistance indicates progress. Listen, if freedom from religion is coming for us, then that's a good indicator. We're right where we need to be. We're right on the redemptive edge, is all I'm saying for you, okay? And they have some big national gathering in October, and I'm like, well, I'm going to double down on prayer over that one. I'm going to ask the Lord to rend the heavens and fall on that scene. And the deeper we cry out for up there to come down here. That's what Nehemiah was doing. He's redirecting all that energy because it built a prayerfulness in him. Look what happens now, verse 7 and 8. Look what happens. Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard the repairs to the Jerusalem walls had gone ahead, and the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. <laughs> They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So you see, 
you know, a common enemy brings all kinds of people together. You're right, you got Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, and then it just keeps building. So church, we ought not be surprised. Students, you ought not be surprised. Whatever it is, kind of multiplying resistance, headwinds increasing. When you're living on the redemptive edge and you're pushing in for a breakthrough, I promise we're going to feel it right there. And this is what Nehemiah, he's going to say, we're going to double down. I like what Dallas Willard said. It's great kind of commissioning for us in our work. He says, look, two main elements of job discipleship. One, work diligently with Jesus' help. Two, offer gentle non-cooperation with evil. There you go. There's your commission for this week. In the office, students, there's your commission at school. Work your tails off. Work diligently with Jesus' help. Gentle non-cooperation with evil. That'll take you to your knees. You're going to need God's help for that. Look what happens in verse 9. They come at him even harder. He goes verse 9. Look what he does. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. So they come at him hard. He goes deeper and harder in prayer. What an example. See, his dependence on God prays, and then he does what he can with what he has, posts a guard. He's not just putting his head in the sand on the physical realities. There's some physical realities to deal with. But he's letting the spiritual interpret the physical, not the other way around. That's the key. You've got to see the physical through the eyes of the spiritual. We've got to be a window and not a mirror. We've got to see another kingdom and another king and frame current physical reality around that, not the other way around. That's what Nehemiah's doing. So then what happens in verse 10? You think, okay, he's going to be breakthrough moment. More problems. Look, meanwhile, the people in Judah, these are the people inside the camp now. He's got trouble outside the camp. Now listen to what happened inside the camp. The strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble. We can't rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Well, that would be a little motivating for calling in sick, right? That'd be a little motivating. Call off the job right there. Basically, show up, you might get executed. Verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So some of you are like, that's your week. You feel like that's your work week right there. You've been battling it. You've been trying to push something forward. You've got resistance on the outside. Now you've got your own team, weary and discouraged and overwhelmed and caught up in fear. That's, that's Nehemiah. It's unraveling on the inside, resistance on the outside. And look, verse 13, what's he do? Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. Notice he's doing what he can with what he has. He's not ignoring the physical. Posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, officials, and the rest of the people, here's the key line, don't be afraid of them. So they're bound up in fear. Nehemiah says, don't be scared of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and their homes. Do you see that? Talk about leadership. How cool is that? I put a little summary in your notes. Like, I kind of summarize it this way. Here's like a Christ-centered, God-centered leadership in the moment Nehemiah found himself. He calls out to God in this posture, right? Complete travailing prayer, crying out to God. He steps towards the chaos. He walks into the headwinds. He assesses the situation. He comes up with a solution. He confronts the fear, and he reminds them, if God be for us, who can be against us? Let's go. Man, how about that leadership? That's the kind of leadership we need right now. People will step in and say, enough with the foolishness. We're going to stand our ground. We're going to enter the arena of travailing prayer and go and ask God to come. And God's going to reset the values. 
God's going to reposition where we need to be repositioned. That's the kind of leadership we need right now. Confronting and looking at the realities for what they are and crying out to God for an intervention. I put a little summary in your notes this way because I thought it might be something you could reflect on through the week. I put it under the remember and fight banner. Do you see that? Remember. There's this posture. You've got to ground yourself. We get together on Sundays like this or students when you're in the afternoon in your small groups and through the week in your small groups here and when your classes and you're mentoring. What do you do? You're remembering what? You're remembering the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that commands your destiny. You're remembering how God has sustained you in the journey of your life before. You're remembering that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You're remembering he'll never leave you or forsake you. You remember that faithfulness surrounds him. You're going to remember that he's the God who's our rock, our refuge, and our fortress. You're going to remember these things, and then what are you going to do? You're going to fight. You're going to fight. You're going to fight to get done what God wants done. You're going to fight for a future that awaits our children and grandchildren. You're going to fight for gentle non-cooperation with evil. Ooh. Fight for truth and righteousness and holiness. Fight for battles that are going to matter a hundred years from now. That's what we do. Are you with me, church? We're going to remember the Lord who's great and awesome, and we're going to fight. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. So we're going to do tonight at 6.30. You want to come back tonight at 6.30? That's what we're going to do in the loft. We're going to spend an hour doing just that. We're going to worship, and we're going to pray. We're going to remember the Lord who's with us, who's for us, and who's able, and we're going to fight. We're going to fight for a future that our children and grandchildren are going to be stepping into. And we're going to say, not on our watch. I'm not going to sit idly by on our watch and watch this foolishness continue to unravel. Not on our watch. Rend the heavens and come, Lord. You come where you're wanted. We want you here. That's what Nehemiah was doing. Then look what happens verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, and notice, and that God had frustrated it. Woo! That's when we know we're making progress, church, when we've got commentary from the secularism agenda that God is frustrating their work. That's when we know we're making progress. You with me? I'm waiting for that article to get written. I can't wait till it's written. I think there's going to be an article coming out of Wisconsin about God stepping in and frustrating the agenda of their foundation. Look at this. And we return, and all return to the wall, each to his own work. Woo! So look, they said, you know what? The circumstances got more complicated, got more messed up. Nehemiah stepped in, spiritual leadership, called them to continue to cry out to God. Do what you can with what you have. Let's go. Let's get after it. God's with us. We're going to fight to get done what God wants done. And then all the opposition coming against them go, hey, the more we pick on these guys, the better they do with their job, like the better the work goes. Yep. Because they're finding themselves not just fighting against people, they're actually finding themselves fighting against God. Good luck with that. And then it closes this way, look, 21 to 23. So we continued the work with half the men holding their spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. Now listen, church, lest we think this is going to be easy, there's going to be some time, hey, these folks are not sleeping, they're sleeping with their clothes on, they're sleeping with weapons by their bed. Verse 22, at that time I said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Huh. And you thought you had a tough quarter at work. All right? So listen, his Q2, Q3, it's like, hey, here's the situation. The intensity of the elements is this. We've got to post a guard. We're going to pray. 
We're going to sleep with our clothes on. We're going to keep our weapons. We're going to have this group positioned to defend, and you keep working, and we're going to keep praying. Sometimes the intensity of our response needs to match the intensity of the times we find ourselves in. That's this moment, church. I'm calling us to a level of response that's in sync with the moment we find ourselves in. This is not a moment for casualness. This is not a moment just to kind of go with the flow. Nope. This is a moment to, with intensity and passion and dependence on God. I think we need a little bit of sleeping with our work clothes on when it comes to kingdom stuff. And so this is the third element that I talk about. What resistance? Resistance indicates progress. Resistance fuels prayerfulness. And resistance builds resilience. Resilience is growing stronger as you get older. Do you see what's being built in these people through this project? It isn't just about getting the wall done. We're going to get into this in the weeks ahead. It's not just about getting the wall done. He'll get it done. It's about who they become while they're building it. You see that? Think of what's being cultivated inside this core group as they work through the resistance, as they pray, as they see God come through, as they see more resistance and more prayer and more God intervening. What's happening inside of them as they have to sleep with their clothes on, as they have to have a spear by their bed, as they have to have dad sit out on the wall and protect? What are they seeing in all of that? Who they're becoming on the journey of getting this project done. Because remember, in the bigger scheme of salvation history, what's the Israelites' role? The Israelites' role is that all the surrounding nations are supposed to look at this group of people in that setting at that time and say, that's what Yahweh is like. That's what God is like, and that's how you live this life with God. God's got a lot of eggs in that basket. So he's going to make sure the wall's going to get rebuilt, the gates are going to get restored, the temple worship is going to get reestablished, and it's about who the people become. They'll be reformed on the journey. That's a bigger picture agenda, so application for us. It's not just about getting us through 2023 or heaven only knows what awaits us in 2024. It's not just getting us through these years. It's about who we become while we walk through them. And I'm calling us to be a people of Nehemiah 4 that walk into the resistance, not backing down because it's indicating we're making progress, doubling down our travailing prayer and allowing it to build by the Holy Spirit a level of resilience inside of us that simply won't give up. I love this quote by Henry, John Henry Jowett. John Henry Jowett, not probably well known to many of you, he was a pastor and author in England in the 1800s. In the later 1800s, Warren Wiersbe called him, here's what he called John Henry Jowett, quote, the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world, end quote. That's a big statement when you know all the other people that were on the map during that time. So here's what Jowett said. I think it captures this very well. It says, it's possible to evade a multitude of sorrows through the cultivation of an insignificant life. Indeed, if a man's ambition is to avoid the troubles of life, the recipe is simple. Shed your ambitions in every direction. Cut the wings of every soaring purpose and seek a life with the fewest contacts and relations. If you want to get through the world with the smallest trouble, you must reduce yourself to the smallest compass. Tiny souls can dodge through life. Bigger souls are blocked on every side. As soon as a man begins to enlarge his life, his resistances are multiplied. And some of you are like, you read that quote and you go, that's where this morning finds you. Because the moment God tapped Nehemiah on the shoulder, his life was enlarged and his opposition multiplied. And for some of you, that's exactly where you're at this morning. Some of you have made some significant decisions recently. You've 
You've put a flag, you've stuck a flag in the center of your commitment to Christ. You put a stake in the ground and you say, I'm stepping up and I'm stepping out in this way. You've renewed some commitments. You begin to press forward in prayer and scripture and reaching out, whatever it is. And you step forward and you recognize like, it's just like multiplied, like the headwinds are just doubled or tripled on you. That's exactly, here's what I want to remind you of. You're in great company. The scripture says you're in great company. Remember Jesus, he was baptized in Matthew 3, led in the wilderness in Matthew 4 to be tempted for 40 days, right on the backside of significant spiritual decision. Or how about Paul? Remember Acts chapter 9, radical conversion? He's led to the desert of Arabia for three years for his Aramos season. So you've got Jesus, you've got Paul, you've got Nehemiah. If you find yourself a bit weary on the battlefront with the headwinds and the resistance, you're in good company. Stay at it. Stay with it. Because problems are multiplied in the work of progress. I've got one final story. Worship team, come on up. I'm going to close with this. Do you remember a few weeks ago I was telling you a little bit about the latest known revival in the Western world? It's called the Hebrides Revival. Do you remember that? 1949 to 1953 on the Isle of Lewis, northwest coast of Scotland. It's called the Hebrides Revival. Here's a picture of kind of the original three main characters of the Hebrides Revival. Remember, it started with 84-year-old Peggy and Christine Smith, 84-year-old Peggy, here's her 82-year-old sister, Christine. Peggy is blind. Christine struggled, struggles with chronic and crippling arthritis. And they were so burdened about the spiritual condition of the Isle of Lewis, particularly the younger generation. They saw an apathy in the younger generation. And then they said, 84 and 82, not on our watch. We're crying out to God. So 10 p.m. on Tuesday, 10 p.m. on Friday, they began to meet together in a little hut. And I came across a book, since I shared this last time, called Sounds of Heaven. I put the book title, I think it's on one of the slides here, Sounds of Heaven. And it's a little summary of some of the kind of the details behind the scenes. Well, they have a picture in there of the house. Can you go to the picture of the house where the ladies were praying? So there's the house in the upper picture. That's where Peggy and Christine gathered for prayer. There's a little cottage. Tuesday and Friday at 10 o'clock, they began to cry out to God. God, rend the heavens and come. We need you to turn, especially a younger generation. We need you to do something. And then some more people started gathering with them. Then the elders of the church started to join them. And the prayer meeting got so big, the elders moved the prayer meeting to that thatched roof house right there. There's the little thatched cottage house right there. That's where the elders and Peggy and Christine Smith began to cry out to God. And in the Sounds of Heaven book, I began to read. It says, here are the things they were praying about. So what were they praying about when they got together to pray? Here's what they were praying about. A little summary, one writer put it this way. Gospel light to shine clear, saving knowledge to increase, ignorance and error to vanish. <whistles> Riches of free grace would be displayed, Satan would be bound up, secure centers would be awakened, dead souls would live, hard hearts would be melted, strong lusts subdued, many sons and daughters born to God. So week after week on Tuesday and Friday, 10 p.m., that's what they're crying out to God. In the spirit of Isaiah 64, oh, rend the heavens, Lord, and do this gospel light shining, saving knowledge increasing, ignorance and error vanish, and et cetera. And what, sons and daughters born to God. They're just crying out. So church, this is our little thatched cottage, okay? It's maybe a little bit larger than theirs, but I just want you to picture, when you even drive out there, I want you to picture this white square building. Just picture our little thatched cottage, our 915 prayer group. That's our little circle of five. It's our Peggy and Christine Smith. But one writer put it this way, when you begin to embrace the realities at hand, when the current reality grips you enough and you begin to see as a window into another kingdom with another king, here's what you begin to see. 
History belongs to the intercessors. History belongs to the intercessors because you're going to join God and you're going to pray into thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Make up there, come down here. And you're going to experience what Nehemiah got to experience. The wall gets rebuilt, the gates get restored, the temple gets reestablished, the people get reformed. The resistances were intense, but they knew this is what God wanted them. You're going to experience what five girls, five college students in Auburn, or 84 and 82-year-old Peggy Smith, it just starts with a few. And so church, this is our moment, this is our time. And perhaps God's put us here in 2023. He says, hey, history belongs to the intercessors. Will you join me? Will you join me and begin to cry out to God for a movement of his spirit in a way that changes our hearts, our church, our community, and ripples out in the trajectory of our nation? Why not? Why not us? Why not now? He comes where he's wanted. So let's pray. Lord, we want you here. We cry out to you here. We join Nehemiah and say, oh God, hear us, oh God. We're in desperate need of you, Lord. On behalf of the students in their schools, on behalf of students on college campuses, on behalf of people deployed in work settings where we just need you to rend the heavens and come. In kind of the twig-blazing, water-boiling, mountain-moving type ways. That's what we need. That the testimony we'd be, our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, a God unlike any other God who comes to the aid of his people. So that's what we're calling out to you to do. Plenty of stuff broken down. Plenty of stuff that needs rebuilt. It cannot be done without you. So here we are, your people. We cry out. Come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray.